Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today's guest, we have Michael Mullen on. We are super excited to have him on. Uh, Michael, would you like to give the listeners a little introduction on yourself? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Always fun to be able to kind of come on and talk shop with some friends and colleagues. I have been in the physical therapy, rehab, fitness world for about 30 years. Worked in outpatient physical therapy for about 25. Opened my own business about five years ago called Integrative Rehab Training, where I do a, a hybrid of kind of rehabilitation and training see people who want to be fit and active and get stronger, who have chronic injuries, ailments, and problems. And on the other end of the spectrum, I see people who are very complicated and have a lot of problems for a long period of time, seeing a lot of people. And because I have just a little bit of a different approach and I've been in the industry so long and learned so much stuff, uh, I'm usually able to give them at least a little bit of something different. So, and then everything in between. Love what I do, love learning, love discussing and chatting with colleagues. So this will be a lot of fun. Fantastic. The topic we really want to get in with you today is about nasal breathing. And that's something you've been posting a lot about. That's the nose, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Great. Glad we asked this guy. So a few things. I know I know we were talking about this, and I'm really looking forward to, to sharing some things that that I that I do, that I've learned, that that I find valuable in terms of overall health. I had this discussion earlier with a client it's kind of saying, you know, I am absolutely here to try and help you with your back issue. But part of my role and job is to have you be overall healthier, just mm-hmm. have a better understanding of how the body works, but also be able to kind of like embrace health for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And there are things that I feel are really, really helpful and important. And frankly, a lot of them are pretty low hanging fruit, but they just take change. They take focus. Mm-hmm. They take behavior change. They take mm-hmm. some awareness and things like that, that and when people are willing, they can they can really appreciate the the differences that it can serve for them, personally, situationally, but also in terms of other things such as quality of sleep during exercise, things like that that uh, they they may not have attributed to before. Respiration, from a standpoint of like what its main job is, like just talking about respiration in general and kind of the internal mechanisms. There's 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 a number of different ways that people talk about it. You know, respiration and ventilation. I try to tell people are kind of Two different record, two different um, avenues. Respiration being kind of the internal chemical nature of what's happening, mm-hmm. ventilation being the mechanical element of what's happening as we move air in and out of our system. Mm-hmm. Primary functions of respiration is to help you know, give an oxygen from metabolism to the tissues. You know, we're trying to oxygenate the cells, get them to flush it around to different parts of the body, have the body absorb what it needs, and then remove carbon dioxide as the, the, the waste product of metabolism that takes place. Respiration also has to do with facilitation of the sense of smell, bringing us to the nose. Mm-hmm. It helps to produce speech. It maintains the, the, the acid-base balance. It helps to maintain body water levels. It helps to maintain heat balance. So all of that is an element of the respiratory function of our internal mechanism. And I use respiration and the mechanical ventilation aspect of it during my daytime with every client that I see to try and have them be able to use it as a tool to better suit the needs of what their body's needs are on that deep level that I talked about, but also in an effort to try and create some shape change to be able to get areas to kind of expand and open up that might be over compressed to get areas to kind of like close off for those people that have barrel chested and abdominals that are sticking out too far. I want to rein in that ability of their ability to, to, to manage that anterior rib cage and that anterior abdominal wall. And we do that by moving air into different directions mm-hmm. and so on and so on. 
And when I'm using ventilation and the subsequent respiration that happens internally, then I'm using it as an effort to try and help to create the change even into the extremities. Mm. Because as okay. I'll talk a little bit about, you know, anything that's happening from a diaphragmatic perspective is going to influence the very top of the head to the very bottom of the toes. Mm-hmm. It's a hard concept for people to think about and appreciate. Yeah. But as soon as they kind of get that into their head, they realize the influence it has on the whole body, then it becomes a little bit of an easier topic to kind of discuss and have an influence. Nasal breathing in particular. So ideally, we should be breathing in and out of our nose as often as we possibly can throughout the daytime. I mean, that is that is an ideal way for the body to function from everything I've read, but also from my own experience, not only by myself, but also with the clients that I see. And I mean all the time. So as I sit here and I talk to you gentlemen and I pause and take a sentence, I try to get in the habit, the routine of inhaling through my nose versus the that inhale mm-hmm. through the mouth thing that many people do before you take a drink of fluid, before you take a bite of food, before you cough, before you sneeze, like whenever in life you can inhale through your nose, you want to try to train your body to be able to do that. The challenging part for a lot of people is that it has never been discussed with them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you've got decades of life that your body has gone through where now it's kind of like, wow, this is a real struggle for me now because nobody ever talks to me about this. And I'll I'll share in a little bit about some of the research that's been done and what some people have, have experienced by going out and kind of meeting with different groups that actually that's all they did all the time. Okay. When we nasal breathe, it filters and cleans the air. Big deal. You got those little nasal hairs, you know, they're, they're constantly picking up the debris and kind of helping to filter that out. It warms the air. And when the air gets warmed and moistened, it makes it much easier for that air to be absorbed internally for us. Kind of like when you go outside in cold weather, Although you guys in Southern Cal probably don't have to deal with that too much, but us up here in Northern Maine, you know, we, <laughs> <laughs> much more. Yes. We get to yeah, like we know 37, December. 37, 38, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's actually October. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. You know, it becomes very different because you realize it's just a little bit harder as that air gets a little bit thinner. But that, that warming and moistening of the air is much easier for our lungs, subsequently our bronchioles. Subsequently, at the very end of those bronchioles, the alveoli to be able to then allow that to that diffusion to aid and enter into our bloodstream to allow the body to be able to absorb it. It slows down the inhalation process, meaning many people that I see are just over breathing. And by over breathing, I mean, you know, you go to the doctor, if they talk about respiration rates, your respiration rates are, you know, 12 to 16 are the norms, but really it should be below 10. I mean, that's kind of like ideal tidal breathing. Tidal breathing being what we're doing right now by sitting and chatting and during our daytime. And this over-breathing is produced by a number of different things. One of it, the mouth. It just goes in a lot easier. Two, habit and routine. We don't know any different. And nobody told us any different. If my heart, if my breathing rate's at 16, it said that's within the norms. Well, then I guess I'm doing just fine. Norms and ideals are very different, as you both know. Yeah. Yes. So slowing down that inhalation process, that nasal root adds about 50% more resistance to that airflow. So it's pretty significant. Mm. And that will change the way that your body is then able to maintain the elasticity of the lungs, meaning lungs are elastic by design. And if we are inhaling through our mouth in this really kind of um, open mouth way, the body is going to take the path of least resistance mm-hmm. to try to expand whatever's easiest. What's stretched out the most? What part of my lungs? What part of my chest cavity? What part of my body actually is stretched out the most? And it's just going to keep stretching out even more just because it's easiest. When we're breathing in through our nose, it helps to provide that optimal um, conditions for providing oxygen and good heart function, 
by allowing that expansion to be as balanced and even as possible so that as many of those bronchioles and alveoli are able to be fed that good air that's coming in as possible. It allows for cranial expansion, which is something that people don't really think about. We think about inhalation, all the lungs fill, and that's obviously very true, but many things expand on inhalation mm-hmm. and many things compress during, inhal- during exhalation, including the cranium. Mm-hmm. Our cranium should expand laterally during inhalation. And I'm not talking about you see it like the chest, yeah. obviously, yeah. but there should be gentle cranial expansion laterally where those temporal bones on the side open up. And then close back down. So there's this balance of this circumferential expansion that should happen through the cranium, through that rib cage, and through that pelvis. And when we breathe through the nose, that actually makes that whole process that much easier. It's a guy named William Sutherland, who's an osteopath from back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that discussed the primary respiratory mechanism. So he was a guy that was in osteopathic school, was in a lab one day, saw a disarticulated skull. So a skull where all the kind of the pieces were all kind of off. And he kind of realized the way that some of the grooves of some of these bones kind of like fit in, particularly like the temporal bones and kind of the way that those, uh, the frontal bones and things like that, frontal bone, uh, in- inserted into each other. And he realized like there's these little, like these suture lines actually mm-hmm. show their membranous. And membrane means movement mm-hmm. and it means articulation. You know, there are the, the, at the time and for many years afterwards, the whole concept was that you know, our, our skull bones fused by the age of whatever, 10 to 12. Mm-hmm. And he's realizing like, I actually, I don't think that's the case. So he spent many years investigating this whole process. And when he realized that, no, actually they do expand, they actually do move. There is subtle movement. And mm-hmm. even though it's not movement, like we think about from a ball and socket joint, there's subtle tugging. That can happen. And that's needed for respiration, that cranial expansion. The analogy I tell people is it's kind of like if I tug on a sleeve, mm-hmm. there's just a little bit of tugging at the, at the, at the seam mm-hmm. of where the sleeve meets the shirt. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that. There's not much going on, but there's just a little bit of subtle movement. And if I didn't kind of like pull on it one way or the other, there'd be a little bit of movement at that seam. So what okay. he came to recognize, which is why I'm talking about this, is because what nasal breathing helps to restore is what he talked about as this primary respiratory mechanism, because that is where you need to maintain the inherent motility of the brain and spinal cord. Motility meaning kind of movement that kind of happens by itself without muscles necessarily kind of yanking and pulling on stuff. Helps to maintain the fluctuation of the cerebral spinal fluid. Mm -hmm. I literally, every time I do that, I'm pumping my CSF. When I mouth breathe, it's not as much. They've done MRI, uh, dynamic MRIs to demonstrate all of this. It helps to maintain the mobility that what they call the intracranial and interspinal membranes, the falx cerebri and the tentorum cerebelli, blah, blah, blah. These things internally in the brain that actually go down our spinal cord that help to keep our balance of our body, like septums of the body that kind of keep that flow side to side. It helps to maintain the mobility of the cranial bones. Super important. And it also helps with the involuntary mobility of the sacrum between the ilium. When I'm doing this through my nose... My sacrum has a much better job during that inhalation of counter-nutating, tipping back just a little bit because I've created that suction, that seal that allows me to be able to kind of create this expansion that happens in all directions. Mm-hmm. Can I explain some of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a talk. bit of a green through my nose. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a coffee guy. I like coffee. Are you familiar with a French press? Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So if you think of a French press... And how as you kind of, you know, you, you pour the great grinds in, you dump the water in, you know, as you go to push down, you can only push so hard mm-hmm. because of the pushback of the way that the pressure volume balance occurs. 
That's what nasal breathing does. It allows that suctioning to be as stable as possible. Mm, Versus if you did that same French press and you didn't put the coffee in and just had water in there, you'd go right down. Mm -hmm. So we want to maintain that suction capabilities to aid in whatever words we want to call it, internal stabilization, pressure management. Do you know what I mean? Fluid movement and control, all that stuff. And we get that when we're breathing through our nose. And we don't get that nearly as much as we're inhaling through our mouth. So, and, and one of the big things is nitric oxide. Nitric oxide. Right. Big deal. Okay. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was, I mean, it was, the gas was um, discovered like eight, late 1800s, but it was only the late eight, uh, 1980s that it was discovered like, oh, actually we make that stuff inside our nasal pharynx region. And that, uh, that uh, when we inhale through the nose, that mixes with that nitric oxide. That's super important for like immune health general homeostasis and balance of the body because we we swallow periodically when that bolus goes down our throat it gets into our digestive system so aids in digestive system health it's uh, the nitric oxide is, is boosted about six times when we nasal breathe absorbing about 18 percent more oxygen through the nose compared to when we're breathing through the mouth we just we kind of bypass that and even though we might get some as i mentioned periodically by just mucus membrane dripping down that we swallow we're not going to get nearly as much. Hmm. And as I think you saw me post recently, Dennis, you know, lab tests are showing that increases the survival rate of the, the cells that we have that are infected with the coronavirus. They're actually doing research now where they're literally giving people nitric oxide as part of a research study to try to figure out who have coronavirus, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how well they recover and what it looks like on the cellular level. So you know, it's a super important element in my mind to overall health, immune health, in particular, in today's world, you know, the ability to be able to help to kind of stave off potentially viral load that might be more than we want to be able to hand if we've got a good defense mechanism in place. It's because it's essentially like our own kind of built-in filter. filter, and the nitric oxide helps eliminate some of these bacterial and viruses that we contra- that we breathe in all the time. Okay, it's, it's it's the amazing thing that happens as we kind of went from faces down. The dirt, depending upon your belief system, mm-hmm. faces down in the dirt, crawling around to being upright bipedal humans. You know, we took our nose off those noxious fumes of the ground, you know, all the all the stuff that's on the ground that mm-hmm. may not smell so well. And so as we've become more upright and our facial features have changed and our nose became smaller and a little mm-hmm. less snouty, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A little more snouty, a little kind of compacted. Our eyes became more anterior to aid in our visual um, dominance as a sense, you know what I mean? Which clearly we have. That's one of the things that allowed us to to adapt these things from what's happening internally from a a nasal perspective. We need to put up other defenses and other ways to help fight stuff because we're not not having our face in the dirt. We got to create another type of defense mechanism. And so what some paleontologists or anthropologists are, are recognizing is Maybe there's a link to that. My body started kind of creating you know, evolutionarily some elements of, of, of a defense mechanism that it needed. But plus, from a health perspective, as, as we talked about before, the fact that it's so powerful a, a chemical internally as a molecule, it's got to be something that's going to be good for us. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't we want to tap into these things as much and as often as we possibly could? You know, for someone um, getting into the nasal breathing, do you think it's something that they need to ease into or can they just go full steam? put some tape on their mouth and start going at it or just be conscious of, you know, closing their mouth all the time? That's, that's a solid question. And if you went to three different people, you'd probably get three different opinions and they're all right. Okay. okay. 
So a couple factors. Number one, I look for people who have outliers that might limit their ability to be able to be successful with it early on. You know, questions I'll ask people, do you know if you have a deviated septum? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 40% of the adult population have a deviated septum. Mm-hmm. Babies, many of them don't. So like, I think it's like you know, five, six, four, five, six percent but more and more happen later on in life. I, I might talk about that in a little bit. So it's a lot of people that have a deviated septum. Mm-hmm. Deviated septum being that, that internal uh, barrier in that nasal pharynx region that kind of gets bent, twisted, torqued, mm-hmm. all the above. And now you're going to get these little pockets where things are going to limit the ability of airflow to go in smooth and easily. Do they have like a nasal uh, valve issue, meaning like is one nostril more open than the other mm-hmm. or both of them? Are they both kind of closed off, making it difficult for them when they inhale at rest to have those not close in on them? Do they know they have significant allergies? Do they know they have significant issues breathing through their nose? I mean, things like that, I'll kind of ask them as I'm talking about things. And that might dictate how I'll use the word aggressive I might be with kind of going at it for them. I'm a big fan of nose cones and nasal strips. So, yeah. you know, people who do have a real issue with being able to kind of keep those nasals open, you know, I'm a big fan of those for nighttime and or during exercise if people have a difficult time or during the day, if they feel like it's difficult to kind of get that ease of breathing through their nose as a limitation, hey, let's use whatever tools we can to have you be successful with it. From a, from a go at it, if you would, I just put reminders to them. And I, I, like I talked about early on, I was saying, anytime you think about it, I want it to have it get to a point that you know when you've actually inhaled through your mouth yes. because it's become that commonplace. Mm-hmm. That if I were to kind of have a sentence with you and I were to pause and I were to do that, I notice it. Mm-hmm. Now, that goes back to what we talked about earlier too. That's behavior. That's interest in being able to follow up with it. Can I trust you enough that this is a big enough of a deal that I really want to do this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I point people to articles. I'm like, hey, here's a really easy read article. You know, there's a book or two out that's actually really good to talk about it. That's an easy read if they want to kind of learn more about it so that it's not just you know, listening to my word. But when I talk to them about some of the things that I discussed earlier and you know, even a few other things that it does, you know, then I think they kind of begin to understand it a little bit more. And they'll even say like, oh my gosh, yeah, you know what? I've noticed all along that I have a difficult time. My mouth is dry all the time. I'm always drinking water. I, you know, all these little things, when you have the discussion after a period of time, kind of start to resonate with them and it makes a little bit more sense for them. So the deviated septum, I've broken my nose twice and I do have my left nasal passage is naturally more constricted than my right. But yet, like I commented on your post, for the last couple of years, I've really been focusing on just nasal breathing. And at first, it was really, it wasn't just, it was difficult. Yep. Uh, but it, it's, so the two biggest, two big barriers I've gotten over, and now it's not a big deal. Anymore. And that's, thanks for sharing that. I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to keep saying fan, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the listeners <laughs> <laughs> can't see this, but when I inhale, you can yeah, see my yes. mouth closes right up. Yep. I got two noses and concussions as well. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a mess up here. Mm-hmm. But I, same thing as you, Dennis. You know, I use a nose strip every single night, and I use a nose mm-hmm. strip every single time I'm exercising hard on my bike, okay. oh, weight okay. training, things like that, uh, skate skiing, anything. Because I am a thousand times better mm-hmm. in terms of my CO2 levels, uh, uh, tolerance, my um, HRV, my recovery. My, uh, my, my, my sense of um, fatigue like, mm-hmm. is significantly different. In fact, if I go out on my bike or something like that and I forgot it, like I notice it right away. I turn back around. I put one back on. So the number of clients that I've worked on with this that have practiced this and or using strips and they go out, I've had the exact same comments. Like, I can't believe it. Like, 
I mean, I'm out doing 50 miles on my bike and I almost never have to open my mouth, even on big climbs. So once you've trained yourself to your point, it can really have a significant influence and you can make a lot of self-correction. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not potentially worth seeing someone if you know you've got stuff going on in there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an uh, otolaryngologist or ENT or someone like that, just to kind of make sure that everything is okay from a health perspective in that region. I actually work with a, a dental sleep specialist who, who does you know, a lot of testing and scans of the head just to try and take a look at what's going on in that, in that region to make sure that they don't have a real physical barrier that might limit their ability to be successful with breathing through, that, through the nose. Because that over time can really affect the airway further down, which then leads to you know, a host of other potential issues. Yeah. My wife is a dentist and uh, you know, she can tell right away if someone's mouth breathing all the time by the quality of their teeth and then also just you know, the way their jaw is too. Um, Those are really two valuable things you just said. And the fact that your, your wife as a dentist recognizes that is fantastic because that's not often the case. When you pick up on those facial features and you pick up on crowded teeth or quality, you said quality teeth, that's awesome. And she's even shared that with you. That mm-hmm. actually is very well referenced. And it's a lot of research goes back more decades, like a couple hundred years, actually oh. longer. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, the influence that it has. So, you know, we're constantly evolving as a species. Okay. Like we don't think about it because we're on the planet for however long we're on the planet, but you know, we've been evolving clearly for a long time. And what they're finding is that in the last 250 years or so, since the Industrial Revolution, that our craniums are actually changing pretty significantly. And when they've done studies looking at skulls, frankly, back to early man. But even back to you know the 1600s, 1500s, when you look at skulls back then, they had great palates, they had great straight teeth, they had great full jaws, and you know dentistry was not as big of a thing back then as it is now. Everybody going twice a year to get cleanings, and we're putting braces on people 300 years ago. But because of the change in our diets, how often we chew, how much we're chewing, how much we cook our food now, uh, environmental pollutants. Uh, sedentary lifestyles and such in the last 250 years, we're still changing. And as a result of that, our facial features and craniums are changing a little bit. And again, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's coming out more and more now by uh, anthropologists and dental specialists who are looking deep into these, these, uh, these uh, uh, findings and realizing we got to get back to this because this is a big deal. So this, your wife might find this interesting. There's a guy named George Cantley back in the mid-1800s who was... Is a lawyer. Actually, I heard about him through this book called Breath by James Nestor. Uh, read, great, yeah, great book. Yeah. Great book. So was, you might, you, you'll, you'll probably recognize a little of this story. So, you know, he talked a little bit about this guy, George, George Cantley, and he's, you know, he's a lawyer. He got tired of that. He decided to take up painting. So he started kind of painting people, got into like the social world, decided he didn't want to hang out with those people anymore. So he literally packed everything up, moved to the 1840s, moved to the Midwest, and lived with 50 different Indian tribes. So American Indians. Mm-hmm. So these Native Americans that he lived with, he lived for years, some of them, just to learn their culture. He did whatever, hundreds of paintings of them just to kind of find more about them and kind of document what they're all about. And he saw that whatever, 50 different tribes, and many of them had no interaction with one another. They all, all of them had beautiful teeth. They've never been to a dentist. They had these full faces, jaws that weren't sunken, faces that weren't narrow. He talked to people and they attributed it to nasal breathing. He said, mm. since 
birth, mm-hmm. all of our children, all through life, are taught to breathe through their nose. When they're done being fed, you know, mothers with infants close the baby's mouth. They would watch them overnight to make sure that their mouths were closed. They bait, they they uh, swaddle them in the winter time in ways to keep their jaws up to be able to keep their mouths closed at all times. Oh, they call it the devil's breath when you breathe through the mouth. They had limited to no episodes of, we'll just say, uh, mental and physical issues. They, they, they called it bad, bad things back then. They had very, very little episodes of that compared to the general population because of this. They're, they attribute it to. So he wrote a book called The Breath of Life and the, the Malrespiration of Man. I think it's called something like that. And it was, it, was, it was referenced in that book, Breath. And so I found it on Google Books. So if anybody wants to pull it up, it's kind of interesting. But the very last part of that book says, if I, could, if I could engrave it on every bedpost in every nursery of every house, it would be and in three big bold letters that said, shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. But he just said, he goes, I have practiced this myself. I had a ton of, I had a ton of health issues. I thought I was dying every single night. I practiced this by learning from them. And I've totally changed my health. I feel like you know, a thousand times better. So fascinating when you realize that in today's modern world and how smart we are with medicine, the Native Americans, the people who brought up on the land kind of know kind of how things work, that if we could apply some of these things to our own society, our own environments, how much more powerful that might be. In my mind, people like your wife and people like general practitioners and things like that should be educating the public. You know what I mean? talking to young parents about this, getting a pamphlet together and kind of saying, hey, just so you know, here's what it's all about. You're taking the time to learn some of the literature. And I'm hopeful that books such as that and other things that have been coming out more start to kind of lead people into that direction. Yeah, I know with our, our two kids. So my daughter is two and a half and my son is three months old now. With him, if I'm awake <laughs> you know, and, and I see him sleeping and I see him open his mouth a little bit, I'll, I'll walk by and just close it. It'll be good. Um, my daughter... A little harder. She does. She breathes through her mouth sometimes, but I try to get in there if I see her sleeping and, and, and try to shut it. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Keep. I mean, keep that up because it's it's just such a a critical thing that I wish I wish I knew many years ago. I just I think I would have had a little better influence on some of the people I've seen, including my own family. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's that's great. You're kind of starting that up, and I just you know again, go back to that little clip. I think it's in nose, I think it is, or something like that in that chapter in that book. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. He actually, 20 years after he stopped doing that in the Midwest, he went down to Central, uh, South America and went into like the Andes and visited, and, and not visited, stayed with Native American, um, sorry, Natives down there. Same thing. These tribes, exact same thing. Like they had no communication, but yet even the same exact findings in terms of like facial features and and stature and and what they what they taught their children from a very young age. So now, if if I'm playing a sport or I'm working out, as opposed, let's say one of my teammates is we're playing hockey, one of my teammates is mouth breathing. I get to the bench where our shift is done, and I'm focusing on nasal breathing. Is my rec- rate of recovery going to be a lot faster than his? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it lowers the heart rate, the breath rate, the shorter recovery time, better endurance. Mm-hmm. something that, that, that reduces the galvanic skin response too. So the way that the kind of the stress response of the skin can be as well too, because again, in my mind, you're creating that suction effect. Mm. That vacuum effect is keeping things kind of like contained, but flowing versus again, kind of like if you kind of, if you play with a little on your own, as you start to kind of realize if you, oh, if you, as you inhale through your mouth, you just don't feel that same 
like suction through all of your limbs. You know what I mean? All the way down to your fingers. It's a it's a subtle sensation, but in my mind, it's it's significant enough done as often as it's done, in particular during higher level athletics. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is worthwhile doing it. And again, it's I, I fully appreciate when you're on the field or you're on the court or you're on the ice. I wouldn't talk to anybody about it other than encourage it, yeah. and suggest it. But I don't want people overthinking things when they're out in the performance realm. Hmm. But if I were working with a team now, as kind of like the athletic trainer, I'd be educating them and working on having them practice it during practices as much as possible. And then when they came off the ice, the field, the rink, whatever, mm -hmm. I'd be saying, nope, get your mouth, nose, nose, nose. Best I just I try to remind them as best as they can. Because much as you've noticed, Dennis, it makes a big difference once you oh. get it down. Uh, you know, the, the hiking is really one of the easiest places to really feel mm -hmm. the benefit. I mean, especially when you're going up those inclines. And at first, when I started, it was a son of a bitch. I mean, I man, yeah. you hit those inclines, and you're trying to breathe through the nose, but your brain is going, yeah, let's let's get all that air in. So it was it was tough, but now it's no matter what the incline, like I lock it in, and it's it's it does it makes a really big difference in your heart rate, how much energy you're expending, something else. And you're, I mean, again, you just, I'm just not as fatigued. I mean, like I don't yeah. get like that. When I'm hiking, same thing, you know, the quads aren't killing me as much. Yeah. I mean, you still work, you still feel them, but it's not like everything in one place because your body has to adapt. Mm -hmm. It has a propensity to go forward when you mouth breathe. It pulls a neck with it. Mm. It, it, it closes off the back of that, that cranial region. Mm -hmm. It makes tongue lazy. Tongues get fatty. They develop fatty deposits. Mm. So tongues aren't viable because you don't have a good patent airway because your body's constantly sucking it in, the tongue's on the bottom of your mouth. The tongue's supposed to be enveloping the roof of the mouth to create the top of that suction. If you look up kind of like deep fascial anatomy, you see kind of like, the, you can probably find it pretty easily on Google, you'll see the connection of some of Thomas Meyer stuff, that tongue all the way down the airway, connection to the diaphragm, all the way down centrally, all the way down to the toes all the way down to the toes. So that's that, that top of that roof of the mouth where that tongue rests is where it belongs. That also keeps that palate down so we get that cranial expansion so we're not getting things shoved up against our brain. Brain don't like that so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, as that head goes forward, the, the ironic thing is that hole at the base of the skull, the frame and magnum, as that goes forward, it kind of then starts to kind of rest on the brainstem because the brainstem goes down through that frame and magnum. The brainstem don't like that. And the respiratory center is kind of right at that level. So it's kind of like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't do it right to begin with. And then potentially you're getting funky signals from the brainstem saying, by the way, you're not going to keep doing it right at all. <laughs> wow. So I was, I was actually just going to ask you about tongue posture for nasal breathing. Yeah. So, and, and, and it, it's a challenge for some people. They'll say, I can't, I, it doesn't rest there. And I'm like, I get that. I, I understand that it's yeah. because it's just become too retracted or again i said i said fatty i'm not even kidding you they've done they've done um uh scans on tongues to show like what the part of the muscle tissue and what part is more adipose so what people who have a very difficult time are um doing it i talked to them about is saying one practice and i literally have handouts of tongue exercises that i mm -hmm. actually have them work on sometimes it's literally taking a, a paper towel and grabbing that tongue and kind of working on kind of pulling it out a little bit it's working on you know putting peanut butter on the roof of your mouth or feeling like you're you know, kind of suctioning. Imagine you're pulling that that palate down. You know, do ten reps of that three times a day. You know, just 
there's things I'll have people work on to try and gain integrity of that tongue tissue, which allows it to have that mobility and, and viability to be able to rest up there easier. Because even though it's going to be work initially to have it up there, I want to have it end up being that that's actually where it goes. There's, there's a, a, a form of therapy called myofunctional therapy. And so people who are really challenged or see have really big tongue issues, uh, then I might suggest, you know, you might want to really consider going to see a myofunctional therapist. And then again, I have the discussion about what they're doing. They go in and they, do, they teach them activities to do with their, their hands or exercises to do for their mouth. Many of them will actually use gloves and kind of go into the mouth and kind of release certain mm-hmm. muscles and tissue that might be limited or, or limiting their ability to be able to get good tongue and mouth posture. And some of that's due to maybe having like some sort of tongue tie too, correct? Yep. Tongue ties can be part of it. You know, uh, frenulum things, you know, related to between the uh, lip ties as well, you know, between the upper end or lower lips, you know, having them become really retracted back and in, then that creates this retractive uh, mechanism where things are kind of being pulled back because you can't get that out. Crowded teeth, you know, closed, narrow palates, all that stuff will create less space for that tongue to be able to kind of open to do its stuff. And again, we're supposed to be chewing and we're supposed to be swallowing Mm. and people are drinking their calories now. Uh, I mean, yes. And and people are like softer food and, you know, some of the food, the soft is really good for you. I mean, yogurt's, you know, yogurt's good for you. You don't have a dairy issue, but you know, if that's, if if you, if the general part of your diet doesn't consist of a lot of chewing, I'm talking about chewing like raw vegetables, Mm -hmm. depending upon what kind of uh, diet you have, you know, getting into meats and stuff that have like, you know, real integrity to it that you have to kind of grind into. We need that grind to maintain viability of not only the juices that we produce that try and help with overall health and digestion, but also jaw, uh, muscle strength and bone strength. So to, to that point, if that tongue's not kind of doing a whole bunch of good stuff by pushing that food around because it's chewing regularly, it's going to get lazier and lazier and swallowing becomes easy. So the tongue's like, eh, I don't have to go to the roof of the mouth to push everything back. Yeah. I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of slurp it down. And and then also I guess the byproduct of if you're chewing something for a substantial amount of time, you have to breathe through your nose. Sure. There's bad manners. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's, a, that's another reason why chewing is so important, but you're right. right. We, we drink so many of our calories today. And, and, and it's my wife's a dietitian. So you know, we're a little passionate about that piece as well too, but. You know, certainly from a standpoint of some of the things we're discussing, it's, it's got to be a foundational change from a, a number of different sources. And that's, that's the challenge. From my perspective, you know, I try to influence on a grassroots level as much as I can. My family, my friends for discussion, and certainly every client that I work with, I try to create some educational element of it. But that's why I like actually going to conferences and meetings and, and reaching out with other health professionals, because I hope that that um, will allow better dialogue to take place. That more people begin to maybe think a little bit differently. I mean, we know what we know, and sometimes we might have been exposed to something earlier on in our careers or during schooling, but it never really get kind of harped upon. So it kind of gets pushed by the wayside. But when it gets brought back to your attention, as you notice things later in your career, like your wife Neil realizing these things, that might be able to kind of spark a little interest by saying, "Hey, you know what? That's a good thing. I'm actually going to start having those conversations with with the people that I see." So going to the, the dental side of things. Like if you're mouth breathing, typically you're snoring too. Yep. Yeah. As you guys know, sleep's a big deal. And, and you know, we talk about sleep and the importance of it, but the number of people with apnea or snoring issues, I mean, snoring's a big deal. I mean, we joke about it at family reunions about, you know, crazy uncle Tom, but um, you know, it's, 
It really is a big, big deal. And conversations that I had with, it's part of my questionnaire. I have people, do you snore? Do you clench or grind your teeth? Do you wear a mouth guard? Do you wake with a dry mouth? Do you wake with salt? You know, because I just want to know how stuck they are potentially there with that airway and how much this part of their, their body from kind of like, you know, the neck up might be playing a role in some of their symptoms. People come into me with multiple issues that are unexplained. They've had a bunch of tests done and no doc can explain what's going on. There's got to be another driver somewhere. And so I begin to start thinking about some of these things that we're talking about now. And low-hanging fruit that you can manage yourself is learning to breathe through your nose. It's being able to work on quality of sleep, like you know, better sleep practices and behaviors. And if you do end up having potential issues with you know, snoring or potential apnea in particular, doing something about it because it's a major health issue. Apnea really is a massive role in heart issues and stress response and things like that because the brain never feels safe and the body stopping breathing like that with those sudden restarts, which is what apnea is, is a massive jolt to the heart. So the link that it has for overall health and longevity is pretty significant. And the reason I like to have people take the steps that I think are important to address it is because if you don't find out if you truly are having apneic episodes, your body's just gonna adjust to it. You're going to walk around in this half-sleep state just feeling like, oh, I just don't sleep well because of whatever. But it actually accumulates over time. And the number of people who I've gone through steps with have, and have worked with this, you know, this dental sleep specialist that I work with or have had some testing done and have gotten a better appliance or something that helps to kind of you know, open their airway for them to breathe, you know, they're a thousand percent better because like, oh my gosh, I feel rested. I feel all the things that we talked about. Might they still need to nasal strip? Sure, they might still need a nasal strip or nasal cone if they need to kind of get that in there that way. But at least if they can get that airway open, get that tongue in a good position, get that mouth to stay closed, they'll be in a much better place to be successful going forward. Have you ever slept with the with the tape on your mouth or some kind of tape? I have. Yep, and and I do I do recommend that to people. Um, and again, I I think that it's a a tool that is something that for many of them need to break into. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes I'll say, hey, do me a favor. Are you working from home now? No. Seven out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> like, do me a favor. Put it on during the daytime just to get used to it. You're answering emails, you're walking around the house, making a meal, something like that, just to have you get used to realizing how often you want to open your mouth. I'm yes. not talking about drinking something, but just how much it happens. Then if you go to sleep at night, it's a little less threatening for them. They've kind of gotten used to it during the daytime. A lot of times we're like, yeah, I lasted like two hours. And I'm like, I just ripped that thing off. I'm like, that's fine. It's no problem. It's like breaking in anything. You just get, it takes some time to have your brain and your body adjust to that. But most of the time, people are kind of like, you know what? I'm pretty convinced I'd keep my mouth closed all night if I didn't use a tape, but I like it. It actually feels really good <laughs> in a weird way, which is kind of keeping that seal closed. So I feel fortunate. I've trained myself because of everything that I do sleep with my mouth closed. I'll just say 98% of the time. But I do feel that, yeah, it's a, it's a great tool to help people. It yeah, makes even- special strips, but you can also just kind of get some of those real light medical grade, a big roll of something. You know what I mean? That's really gentle on the skin. Yeah. The one I, I said, say, don't use duct tape. Yeah. Don't use duct don't tape. Use duct tape. <laughs> they will though. It'll, it'll work. It'll work. But yeah, <laughs> I, I like, I use nasal strips. I mean, good Lord. I mean, I, oh, I've yeah. gotten when a lot better. I've gotten together. way better uh, over the years. When we first traveled together, I had to get two hotel rooms. Yeah, over. I would, I would always, <laughs> and I still do it today just for courtesy, but I would always get a separate room because I knew that I snore. I think one of the things that I found out though, is I wasn't wearing the nasal strip as efficiently or in the right place. And I was wondering if most people don't really 
the instructions on the box are the, are what they have, but I don't really think they give the optimal placement and technique on how to apply that nasal strip. Is that, do you find that that's the case? I mean, I think it probably does. So, so a couple of things that I've found successful that, I mean, so it needs to be placed one millimeter left of, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, number one, I tell people take a dry towel, wipe your nose because mm-hmm. there's going to be oils on there. It's not going right. to stick as well. Number two, I have them place it about half an inch above the tip of their nose, right in the middle. And what I have them do is I say, press on that, uh, press right where you put it to kind of like open the nasal openings. And then as you go to put it on, open your nasal passages with your muscles. So like that, which listeners can't see, but as you open them, usually you make some kind of weird distorted face as a result of that. (laughs) Yes. That allows it to be in a good position that then you can put it on and capture it. And I tell people, I want the bottom part of the two ends to be right on the bottom part of the outsides of your nose. Yes. And then again, you know, most of the time, once they put that on, they take a breath like, oh my gosh, that's what it's supposed to feel like. Holy Big cow. difference. Yeah. When I was first putting them on, I wasn't, but now when I put it on, I pull my nose open and then I found that, holy crap, I get way more air in. Can you do that again? <laughs> Just like that, yeah. <laughs> We'll do a close-up for we, people on we release YouTube, it on YouTube. People who watch this on YouTube <laughs> will see that. But yes, no. But I mean, there's I mean, there's other things too from a nasal perspective. I mean, it is significantly connected with taste, and people don't think about that. I mean, you do when you're like sniffing food. Yeah. But you know, you're not going to taste things well unless you're able to kind of breathe well through your nose. And it actually, eighty percent of what you're tasting is dependent upon nasal movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, sommeliers, you know, I mean, those wine people, like they get it, like they have these. And it's actually what you breathe in through your nose, the, the, the orthonasal, it's more than what they call the retronasal, like deep back inside that actually then begins to get into your olfactory centers. And then those kind of send messages to the olfactory bulbs in the brain. And that's kind of one of the highest sensory processing areas in the body. So even though it's small by appearance, it's got a massive input into the brain and a huge memory. I mean, think about something that you can think about that you smelled. 20 years ago that if you smelled it, you'd like, it was like right. yesterday. So it's a huge element related to our, 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 our memory banks as well and creating memories. In fact, more so, I mean, as much as vision pretty much, but some people even suggest more so, but definitely hmm. more than sense of touch or sense of hearing. So it can help regulate our heartbeat. So literally by being able to kind of manage how well we do it, our heart rate can actually be adjusted. You talk to any yoga person, they'll talk about that and issues that it can produce from a standpoint of overall health, because now you're optimizing cardiovascular health. Pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Get these nasal cycles. I mean, we're constantly kind of going back and forth every, I think it's like 30 minutes to four hours. And we kind of go from one dominant nostril to another dominant nostril. And it kind of goes back and forth periodically during the daytime. And that's part of the, my mind, the alternation and the, the, the reciprocity that is respiration is mm-hmm. this back and forth which is what our body needs to be able to produce can significantly through all parts of our body. It's clear in gait, arm and leg movement, but we need this back and forth nasal cycles, just like we need back and forth respiratory cycles in our diaphragm, just like we need organ movement and fluid movement internally, blah, 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 for the body to be able to be reciprocal and move most effectively. And if you look at any person who's a predominant mouth breather and you watch them walk, I think you'd see people who are jacked up no arm swing, you know what no. I mean? And they, they produce a certain way. Look at the runners who are breathing and breathing through their mouth. 
watch their position, their posture, look at their gait. Like it's fascinating when you really kind of correlate that. They're a very different looking species than those who are doing it through their nose exclusively. Have you, uh, have you looked at the top runners in the world to see if they're mostly nasal breathing? I haven't looked at the top runners in the world, but there's a lot of research about coaches and, and athletes who are like, I haven't visibly looked at them. You know what I mean? But, but if you look at the top, uh, some, some coaches in the past over the last 40 years or so, and some of the top athletes and what they, how they've, they've worked on this with their athletes, they're the ones that actually won a lot of stuff. Mm. They're the ones that actually really had really good recoveries. They're the ones that had low injury rate because they're not pulling muscles as much because of the optimization of that acid base compound and the, 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 the acidity of the muscles and the, the flow through the tissue that allows itself to be able to be optimal for, for performance. So no, absolutely. I, I mean, but it, but it's an interesting point. I, 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 I might make note of that a little bit more. Going back to the, you know, the left side, the right side of the body, you're talking about this cycle and this flow. Would you have someone practice breathing through? So say closing off one nostril, breathing through one nostril, and then closing off the other nostril and breathing through the other nostril as a practice? Yeah, that's, that's actually an awesome question. Yeah, I do actually uh, pretty regularly. There there are as many ways to breathe as there are, you know, grains of sand. You know what I mean? Like there is no one way. There's ways that I coach people to learn to be able to kind of optimize their breathwork baseline is kind of what I tell them. I'm trying to get to a good baseline so that you have all of these options of breathing capabilities from a performance, from a recovery, from a stress response, whatever. One element that's been pretty clearly shown in the literature is the right versus left nostril uh, influence on the autonomic nervous system. So our right nasal passage is a sympathetic-based nostril. It correlates to our left brain. Circulation speeds up, body gets a little hotter, cortisol levels increase, blood pressure, heart rate, they all increase with right nostril breathing. Can it increase your digestion rate as a result of it? It feeds blood to that opposite hemisphere. So now we got the left logical prefrontal cortex kind of input that's taking in is now saying, okay, I'm on, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. You can use that from a standpoint of performance as an element of being able to have them tap into that autonomic element that can mm. be worthwhile. Some people do it for digestion. The left is more tapped towards the more parasympathetic side, okay? So the more rest, digest. It helps the lower body temperature, blood pressure, cools the body, helps to reduce anxiety. So that left nostril breathing could be a nice tool to have people use if they're in a stressful situation or stuff like that to tap into the nasal cycles as people do go back and forth a little bit. Depending upon what I want them doing as an end result, I might cue them accordingly. Here's what I want to have you do. I want to have you do 15 on the left, 15 on the right, 15 on the left. Because I, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I want to have them finish in a chill state. Or if they're doing it for a performance perspective, it's 15 on the right, 15 on the left, 15 on the right, you know, because I still want people to alternate and reciprocate, but it depends upon what I want them doing afterwards. You know, it doesn't last long, that influence on the ANS, but, you know, if I got something going on for the next, whatever, 20 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes, then to me, it's a good way to kind of get someone to potentially help get them to a state that I want them to be able to get at, or at least teach them different ways that they can use it themselves, depending upon what they want to do, task at hand. So if you have one nasal passage that's either deviated, closed off more than the other, and you do block it off, do you want that person to spend a little bit more time focusing on the side that's more restricted to get more comfortable with it? Yes. Okay. Uh, not, not uh, often. If, I, if they got stuff going on, like if it's the driver for them, 
you know, I, I kind of showed you my nostril early on. I yes. kind, of, you know, kind of bridged in. So you can see my left closes mm -hmm. off pretty easily. So mm -hmm. that's my chill side. I'm a chill person, I like to think, but clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so I will literally take gauze and roll it up and put it up my right nostril. 20 minutes, half an hour, 40 minutes, just to allow me to kind of like experience that side of my ANS and bring it, bring it down oh, a little. Okay. Busy, crazy day, a lot of input, a lot of stuff going on. I want to kind of downregulate my system at the end of the day. I'll just take my clearly dominant side and just kind of, I, I didn't plug it. I dampened it. You know what I mean? Yes. I just took enough away from it that I'm going to allow my other side to be a little bit more dominant, a little bit more involved in my ability to downregulate my system. That's cool. So for other people, yeah. same type of thing. You know, if they see one that's a little bit off, I might have them practice that other side a little bit more just with a thumb. It kind of works. There's different ways that people do it. They'll move their hands in different positions. They'll like come up over the top. You know, sometimes they'll just kind of put a thumb up underneath. I mean, I don't know that there's any one right way to block the side off, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. um, I've kind of played with all of them. You know, if I put my thumb underneath, you can still see I'm still going to get some movement here. If I block it off with my finger to close the whole thing off, that's going to be a very different feel. Mm -hmm. Some people, it's too much to block it off completely than it is to just put a thumb underneath, which as you can still see, creates just a little bit more of a, mm -hmm. I'm just doing this so that if I could watch every single person listening to this, I've got fingers and thumb on the oh, yeah. <laughs> You got fingers up there. You got tape on their mouth. <laughs> but sensory wise, I'm telling you, it's a big deal. I have a client. She cracks me up. She says, I put on my, my, my nightshades on my eyes. I put on my nasal cones in. I put the tape over my mouth and I put my ear plugs in. I'm like, best birth control going right there. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. The difference between mouth breathing and nasal breathing and the effect that it can have in the quality of your movement of your body, I think is quite an interesting relationship that I don't think a lot of people would even associate. Yeah, no, a, a thousand percent. You know, people can picture, I mean, I use the French press analogy, but you know, if they don't, people don't drink coffee, you know what the heck I'm talking about. Think about like a bicycle pump. You know what I mean? Think about a, a syringe. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so that element of that suction that it creates and allows the body to have for intracranial, intrathoracic, intra-abdominal, intra-pelvic pressure management for whatever you want to call it, for stability, internal stabilization, pressure management, whatever it is, is significant. And so when they can be in their, allow their bodies to be able to utilize that as a tool for force production, for athletics, for training purposes, you know what I mean? For mm -hmm. movement quality, they'll flow so much better because everything's being contained. Everything's kind of in one place. And if people, you heard, you heard me doing it audibly to kind of create the point, but if mm -hmm. I do this, my head's going to go forward. My chest is really the only thing that's kind of taking that air in. I'm not getting expansion most other places. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tighten up and I'm only going to move through force of will versus internal fluid movement. Again, we're a big meat suit. Thank you, Bill Hartman. We're a right. big meat suit of fluids and guts that kind of are spilling around all over the place. And the best way to contain that is through the, the pressure management system that we've been given mm -hmm. and to be able to optimize that by practice and practice and practice does movement management, as well as the laundry list of other stuff we've talked about for the last little bit. So even if we're expressing, you know, as much power as we can, like throwing a punch or a kick, and sometimes it's natural to kind of almost hiss, right? Or if you're lifting something super heavy, you might hiss. Is that 
something you think with nasal breathing, you'd be able to create more force? No. So no, that's a great question. And, and that's an important clarification point. So Dennis mentioned movement. I talked about force production. I talked mm-hmm. about other things. When it comes to the high-end performance realm, let's say, you know, submax lifting, you know, maximal lifting, listen to tennis players. Yes. Yes. You know, it's a it's a it's a different element. So when it gets to the performance side, you can create that much more tonic contractile quality. So there's this concentric element of things really contracting that you want for true force production. You with me? Mm-hmm. You know, those really exertive sports, you know, your golf, your tennis, your, uh, you know, th- those things where you're going <clears> to, <throat> you know, that, that yep. element yep. hiss or the <clears throat> creates that real concentric muscle work, that exhalation mechanism that in my mind, do it however you want, mouth open, mouth closed, whatever works for you. Because mm-hmm. for me, as long as you then have the tools to then go back to the movement piece, Dennis, the recovery piece, down regulation, you know what I mean? Now you've got this thing that you can fall back to when you're done that element to then be able to allow your body to recover better and not potentially stress it out quite so much. No, that's a great point. It's a great point. And I don't think there's, and I don't think there's a right way to teach that either with people. They all, you know, each coach has their own, you know, style and, and technique that they kind of like to go through. But I mean, I think they're all good. Any of those ones that create that that concentric nature internally and externally is is, is going to be ideal for those, you know, those quick explosive one, you know, one, two things. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that that uh yeah, that all the information you gave us, man, is that's huge. That's gold. Yeah, well, it's it's gold, and the problem is, but the problem is, is it's not talked about enough, yeah. and that's what we're trying to get more yeah. people in our industry to to understand the importance of it, pass it on to their clients, and really, that's one of the reasons why we wanted you on is to to start to get listeners to, oh, well, even if we just get a handful of people to go, oh, okay, I'm going to check into this, yeah. and that's where we have to start. Is just no, getting that little bit. Velocity. Thank you for thinking of me. And, and so to your point, Dennis, so let's say 10 performance coaches or you know, therapists or whatever, listen, I would hope that they would experiment a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then in my mind, then they're going to influence a lot of other people. Yes. Their clients, their patients, you know what I mean? The population that they work with. And so to me, much like 20 years ago, when I was the outlier and the oddball talking about breathing so much. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, you have no idea how many arrows I've taken over the years. No <laughs> idea. And now it's a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can't help but think it just needs time for it to kind of brew and mm-hmm. kind of get enough people who are interested in playing with it and recognizing it and experimenting with it mm-hmm. to realize the influence and kind of say, wow, you mean thousands of years ago they were talking about this? Wow. You mean hundreds of years ago they were still talking about this? <laughs> Why aren't we talking about it today? Right. Yeah. All the things we have in, in, in store and how smart we are with all these things. I, I'll joke and say it's because it can't be packaged and marketed and sold. Yeah. But that being said, I think that I think that we're we're better than that. And I will say that I think that you know we can influence enough people that it can make a big change. And again, to, like your wife, like, hey, listen to this podcast. Let's do what it has to do. You know, that that might help to get she goes to a she goes to a dental meeting. I was in um Mexico last year with this dental sleep specialist I work with at a retreat with a bunch of other, like 30 or 35 other uh, orthodontists, dentists, people in the sleep industry, grassroots, you know what I mean? And let's all collaborate. Let's all figure this out. Let's talk about it. And we each put on kind of like a 15 minute, just a little quick little snippet TED talk just to kind of create a a dialogue and exchange and then work groups and lunches and things like that. Those are the types of things that I think stimulate good conversation. Yes, and then again, then you go out to your reaches of the world, and then you can influence the people uh, along those lines. As soon as we can get back out of these COVID times to 
to do those things. Right. I think those are really important things to to create that dialogue and that exchange. Talking about COVID, like when we breathe through the mouth, we're talking about the masks and everything going out. When you're inhaling and exhaling through the nose, the amount of aerosol going out is vastly different. Vastly. Yeah. You had um, Joe Miller on before I heard that podcast. Yes. It was great. Yes. Yeah. So she was talked about that. This, uh, whatever she had seen related to you know, the person with, you know, data mouth, uh, Mask on, mask off. Mm-hmm. You know, O2 levels are no different, but it was their perception. Or CO2 levels are no different, mm-hmm. but their perception. Let me demonstrate this. People can't see it, but if you put a mask on, clearly, I clearly just taken mine off. <laughs> and if you watch my mask movement as I breathe through my nose, if you watch my mask movement as I breathe through my mouth, vastly different. Yeah, yeah, huge. huge, huge. You're sucking all day long, and you're sucking fabric, and no wonder you hate this thing. Mm-hmm. You can't breathe through your nose. No wonder you can't stand those things. I'm not saying I love them, but I'm saying you're going to be that much more miserable about them and you're just going to be that much more stressed about them, which will change your breathing, which will make mm-hmm. you resort to more mouth breathing. It's so true. So it's like <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. It really is. When they can find that ability to really practice that with those on, it will become much easier. But it takes practice without it on to have you be successful with it on. Like one last thing here. If yeah. if you if someone had, say, you know, five minutes and they wanted to just intentionally practice their breathing, would you recommend a tempo that they should breathe at? Like uh, recommend a like what? A, like an inhaling, you know, like a time to oh, inhale, awesome. exhale, hold their breath. Or yeah, would you just say, Hey, you know what, you have five minutes, just cover your mouth and just just breathe? Yeah, no, that's 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 a great question. Yeah. Cover your nose and mouth for five minutes and good luck. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what I'm just kidding. <laughs> A couple things that matter to me with most people that I see. Number one, obviously, is in through the nose. During the daytime, I tell my clients, I want to have you inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your nose, as I talked about right from the start, much mm-hmm. often as you possibly can. There are people when I want to have them get a longer, fuller exhalation, never really forceful, but longer, fuller exhalation, I'll have them do it through their mouth because you can get a little more out with a little more muscle activation. So. When practicing breathing for five minutes, inhale through your nose. And I tell people maybe a five or a six count. As you discovered in the book Breath, we talked about 5.5 in, 5.5 out is kind of like the ideal number, if you would. But I want to have them establish a better baseline to start. And so if someone's in that more uh, imbalanced breathing state of, of body position and body posture and all that, then they're probably starting in a more elevated or, or um, whatever, hyperinflated or, or, or uh, overbreathing state. So I want to downregulate that. So I'd have them inhale through the nose, I'd have them exhale through their mouth, and I'd have them blow out more air than they're used to. Not forcefully, just more than they're used to. And then I'd say, then pause and count to three. When you go to inhale through your nose, inhale slower than you want to. Because a lot of times, if they're not used to it, there's going to be a rebound. They'll exhale, they'll pause, and they'll go, and they'll like do this quick because their brain feels threatened, they're not used to it. So I never want them feeling threatened, which is why I kind of coach them through it softly. I say, I want to have you imagine that you're never really fully inhaled or fully exhaled. Imagine there's this wave as you're inhaling, the wave comes in and it kind of like tumbles at the top as you're inhaling. And as you're exhaling, you're exhaling and it's kind of receding out and it's kind of tumbling towards the ocean as you're exhaling. You're keeping your throat you're keeping your glottis open the whole time. So in smooth and easy through the nose, out smooth and easy through the mouth, pause for a few seconds, keep the throat open, 
slowly inhale through their nose. And I'll have them do that about five, six, seven times. And then I say, get your tongue to the roof of your mouth and then do it just through your nose now. Because in my mind, I want to have them exhale a little longer each time to kind of change the internal mechanism. Dome the diaphragm, get the abs and pelvic floor better positioned, uh, squeeze out that dead air that's kind of like lodged in some of those more open places that I talked about earlier on to get that dead stuff out of there so that that each inhale is kind of has uh, better space for things to come in. And then once they've practiced that and they practice their breath holds, sorry, not breath holds, pause after end exhalation, increasing that each time, then that allows their body to develop a lot more balance from the respiration part that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier on, the chemical mm-hmm. part, as well as the mechanical part, the stuff I just listed, diaphragm, pelvic floor, abdominals, ribs, things like that. Longer exhalation, gradually longer pauses, slow, smooth re-inhalation, and then bring it back down to a minute or two of just nasal, smooth and easy in through your nose. You know, a big ocean guy, just picturing that wave kind of going out smooth and easy and then coming back in smooth and easy. You know, the work by Patrick McCune in his book, The Oxygen Advantage, talks mm-hmm. about this, that bolt score. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Botaco breathing is kind of like, hey, you know, you should be able to kind of exhale, plug them both up and last for 40 seconds. I mean, that's hard, but it's something to strive towards to be able to kind of create that better uh, balance of your, your, your metabolism internally uh, to be able to practice that. That's the way I kind of work people towards that, towards that, towards that goal. Thank you very much. Where can people find you uh, on social media and and website or? Yeah, thanks. So um, M J M A T C. Um, I've been very fortunate and snagged that for pretty much everything. So okay. that's Twitter, it's Instagram, it's my webpage. You know, it's you know my Michael at M J M A T C is my email if people have questions. So. Um, you know, I'm pretty easy to find along those lines, you know, integrative rehab training is the name of my, my business. I got a Facebook page on that, but, uh, and are you going to do, uh, you got any perform better talks coming up or, uh, not, no, I just, I just okay. did one. So if people are interested, you know, actually not just me, but you know, the, 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 the perform better summit obviously was all virtual this year. Mm-hmm. And so if you download the perform better app, you get all the talks for free. So oh, I think they got oh. week 13 done. So there's a ton of great material on there from a lot of really great people. So um, I think mine's week 14. I did it on you know, um, managing and optimizing pressure and tension. So I talk about things from a, from a performance perspective. I got a couple of talks going on in virtual China <laughs> in a month or two. But yeah, I've done, I've done a few things this summer. But oh, the, um, another thing too is you know, on my website, I do have a couple of webinars. I do have one that's kind of like posture, miscon- uh, the misconceptions and history of posture, which mm-hmm. people might find interesting. It's not what people think it is. Okay. So I did a PowerPoint for, for Katie Sinclair and, and her Empower Performance Group on that. So if people are interested in kind of learn a little bit more about kind of what history really tells us about posture. It might be interesting. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. I'd we'll love to have out. you on again yeah. and uh, talk a little bit about that we'll too. We'll do that next time we have you on. We'll be definitely talking about that. Thank you for coming on, brother. We appreciate it. Great information. That was fantastic. That's what we want the listeners to uh, get. And you brought it today. So thank you very much. And, uh, We look forward to having you on again, sir. Look forward to it again. Gentlemen, really fun to talk with you. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you again. And to all the listeners out there, until next episode, be good to each other.